Pastor Ryan here. The first part of our audio recording for this sermon was unfortunately cut off during the scripture reading, so I'll be reading part of the scripture reading for us. It's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 35. Again, Matthew 18, 15 through 35. Jesus says to his disciples, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven which is 490 for those of you trying to figure out in your head. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him only a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. chunk of teaching offered to us by Jesus Christ is 100% interesting, strange, awkward, terrifying, and beautiful all rolled into one. And we're going to unpack each of these aspects here in a moment. But what they all point to is our sermon in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Seize every opportunity to glorify God, especially where God's glory is least expected. People don't expect God to be glorified in relationships gone sour. People no longer expect God to be glorified in even local church relationships, especially when church leaders and people who want power in the name of religiosity and spirituality are involved. 
And so peacemaking is one of the least expected ways you can glorify God with your life. And so it has powerful potential to jar people into seeing God's glory. You see that? People don't see it coming. I want to share this morning from Jesus' teaching four unexpected ways we can glorify God through making peace in relationships. God is unexpectedly glorified through peacemaking when, number one, we see here, the church does something about relational sin. Read with me again in verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, someone who's not part of the fellowship. Jesus thinks the church is a crucial weapon to fight against relational sin. Other than mentioning once that the church will exist in Matthew 16, this is the only time Jesus uses the term church in all four Gospels. It's the only time he says something about its function, its role, its purpose in the world, and it's all about conflict in relationships. Yet, let's be honest, what church actually does what Jesus describes. Actually does this. Number one, churches rarely want to ruffle feathers, right? That's how churches lose members, right? By getting all up in people's business. Number two, no one in the church wants others to see his or her secret garbage. We want to manage what people see, right? You can see some things, just not the worst things. That I have. Number three, the process that Jesus describes here just feels awkward and mechanical. I mean, Jesus it is. It's a process here, right? Jesus is like, number one, try this. This doesn't work, try this. Jesus is going through like almost like a manual of how to put something together. Of course it feels awkward and mechanical, not only because of that, because we've grown up learning, observing, absorbing all kinds of quick fix, unhealthy habits for dealing with conflict whether they're aggressive habits or avoiding habits right fleeing or fighting so it takes practice and practice and practice for jesus process to feel natural to us because it won't at first let's look at this process here first here in verse 15 he starts very simply with a simple private conversation with the person who has offended you, who has wronged you. And what we'll look at over the next four weeks, okay, is what this initial conversation should look like. I should say the next three weeks after this. What that initial conversation should look like. But with a healthy ounce of supernatural courage, uh, or in some cases, for some of you, liquid courage, <laughs> you might get this far in confronting someone, right? That initial sort of conversation. But if that doesn't work, Jesus says that you know, if they don't listen, 
bring others along to confirm both that this is a serious matter and that you've tried, that you've made an effort to do something about it. It's often wise at this point to get a community group leader involved or another pastor who can wisely help you and speak into this situation. Finally, if that doesn't work, bring in the whole church. It's pretty serious, right? And in the modern context, with hundreds of churches, right, a person is often absent at this point. The offending person is often absent at this point. They'll find another fellowship. You know what? Forget this. I'll just find somewhere else to go. I'm not going to go in front of the whole church and it have them confront me about wrongdoing and the fact that I won't change and I won't say I'm sorry and I'm just going to be stubborn and unrepentant. I'm just going to leave. Find some other place and take their sin and their hurt which is bound with them. And so if they don't respond then, we're told, well then just treat them as if they're not part of the fellowship. Right? They're like a tax collector or a Gentile. Someone not included. Now, wow, I mean that sounds harsh. That's so harsh, Jesus. A couple reasons. One, because as we learned last week, people tend to be defined relationally. We're defined by relationships. So what people are enduring in defining relationships, they're often spreading. So if a person's causing bitterness in their own life or they're experiencing bitterness in their own life, typically... People will spread that as well. And hurt people will then hurt people. Number two, hurt spreads fast. Nothing spreads like hurt. Penton's stubborn sinner will infect the entire church. One of the verses we looked at last week, Galatians 5, I want to repeat again this week, where Paul talks about, hey, you know, you're called to freedom. Don't use your freedom Though, to serve yourself, use it to serve others. Because we're called to love one another. And then he gets down here in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And what we mentioned last week is how weird it is that Paul jumps from, from a little bite to devouring. Right? Like, like my son who claimed... He would eat just one of his dad's Pringles chips. Once you pop, you can't stop. Which is the Pringles slogan, by the way. I got it wrong last week. Yeah, and I got a new can this week, both from my wife and apparently from someone this morning who brought and put this on the, the pulpit <laughs> without me knowing it. Very nice. Thank you for that. So I got two cans. <laughs> Very clever. Um, it... it you go quickly from biting to devouring. It spreads quick. Hurt spreads fast. In fact, there are three occasions listed in the New Testament where people get booted out of a church. Number one, persistent sexual immorality. How you can understand that. Number two, heresy. People who claimed, well, Jesus might be God, but he's not really a man. Or he's a man, but he can't be God. And there's latent heresy. Although most apostles and pastors, interestingly, in the New Testament, try to be very patient with that and work through that with people. But number three, divisiveness, divisiveness. Hurt people, hurting people. Because it, it just spreads so fast. Paul says it this way in Titus 3. 
As for a person who stirs up division, the Apostle Paul is talking to a pastor, this guy named Titus. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and warning him a second time, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul's serious about this. He said, man, that, that person that will ruin a church will spread this infection. Most of you here at Sunrise have trusted your life to Jesus through Sunrise. Perhaps you're young in your faith, or you've never really plunged into becoming an active member of a church. And that's kind of most of our church. But there are some here, however, they're here because they've experienced some hurt from a church. And that church didn't do anything about it. I hear this all the time. In fact, I heard that even this past week. The church didn't do anything about it, about the conflict, about the hurt. The most loving thing church leaders can do in response to unrepentant hurt is to protect people from those who spread it. It's hard. It's not easy. But God is glorified in the church when as a church we actually do the hard parts that no one really expects us to do. So number one, along with your bros and your sisters in Christ, you can glorify God by taking action in response to a relational sin. Doing something about it. Not just sweeping it under the rug. Not just pretending it's not there. Second way you can glorify God through peacemaking, where it's least expected, is when a brother or sister has been gained. Right? You get this idea here, this outward goal of all this process is to gain a brother or a sister. Right? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This word translated gain, cardino, is a commercial word. It's a word of, of the marketplace. And using marketplace language, a person in the wrong is a great treasure whose absence is a great then lost to us. It's a valuable loss to us when they're absent. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, a great pastor, I think put it really beautifully when he said this. It is the great tragedy of a man lost which colors all this instruction here in Matthew 18. And the purpose which is to be in our hearts when we deal with a sinning brother is that of gaining him. The word gain suggests not merely the effect on the one lost, but the value it creates for those who seek him. When presently we have done with the shadows and the mists of a little while, right? The little conflicts, the little things that bother us, we will understand in the light of the undying ages that if we have gained one man, we shall be richer than if we had piled up the wealth of the whole world. confrontation is not to judge or to condemn, but to gain that brother or sister back to the family sofa. And I know confrontation runs contrary to everything we think, right? Everything we want to do. That person's going to feel judged. They're going to feel condemned, we say, right? I don't want to feel or appear holier than thou. Like I'm, I'm better than that person and they're going to feel badly and I get that. And yes, nine times out of ten, they're going to feel like it kicked them in the stomach. So I want to encourage you to listen all ten times. And along the way, remind them of what a gain they would be 
what a, what a treasure they are to you and to the entire body of Christ. Keep reminding them. Don't give up. The reality is that there are people here you, you fought with, you have conflict with. The reality is that it was either you or them. Right? Either you or them who stayed in the circle of your friends. It was either you or them who stayed in your community group. Either you or them who fell out of favor with your kids. Or you or them who's worshiping with us this morning. You know, neither of you would put it that way. No one puts it that way. But you know in certain situations, they aren't there. And you are. And it all happened to start when you had this conflict. Or maybe you rubbed them the wrong way. I want to encourage you, go back to them for the eighth, for the ninth, for the tenth time and remind them what a gain they would be. So this outward goal of gaining back a family member requires, I think, though, an inner priority, and it's this. Gaining family trumps getting everything right. I'll explain what I mean here. Gaining family trumps getting everything right. Normally, in these situations, you've got to be willing to give up getting everything right and fair in order to gain someone back. To get everything right and fair. The primary leader, galvanizer of the Methodist movement back in the 18th century was this open-air preacher named George Whitfield. Any of you here come from a Wesleyan or Methodist background? Okay, A few of you out there. If so, when I make that comment, you should be looking at me a little funny. All right? Because Methodism, Wesleyan, was started by the Wesleys, right? Who's this Whitfield guy? Charles wrote the music. John did the leading and the preaching. These men, though, worked alongside and adopted what a man named George Whitfield was already doing. George Whitfield was a guy who preached three or four times a day from age 22 to the day he died, age 55. I did the multiplication like Rob did earlier. 40,000 plus sermons. All right, if you just... 40, without a microphone in an open field where sometimes horses would like run through, old ladies would be run over. And so if you ever hear me complain about preaching, just remind me of those things. <laughs> You're right. You're right. The Wesleys basically replicated what he did. And they worked alongside him for the sake of the gospel as thousands and thousands came to trust Christ through what was known in America as the Great Awakening, but he also helped, they also helped Whitfield back in England and Scotland. Until John Wesley took it upon himself to write a severe letter and sermon against the doctrine of predestination. Something he knew Whitfield believed was in Scripture, but Whitfield had never included it in his preaching up to that point because he wanted to focus on Jesus in his preaching. And despite calling Whitfield out, Wesley wanted to separate himself as well. Whitfield essentially handed over thousands of British followers under the care of Wesley when Whitfield was called back 
the United States. He was needed back there. And he just handed them over to Wesley, despite Wesley basically dissing him and saying, you know, I want to separate myself from what you're doing and in a sense from you. Most of the movement urged Whitfield when he returned back from the United States to take back the position of leading this movement, take back the position that was rightfully his. But Whitfield said only two things. Number one, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Second thing he said, upon being asked by his admirers if they would see John Wesley, this man who separated himself, if they would see him in heaven, Whitfield said no. He will be so near the throne and we so far from it that we won't be able to even see him. Be so near to Christ. God used George Whitfield to start a movement. A movement of Christians, people who loved and adored Jesus. But Whitfieldians became Wesleyans because George Whitfield made it an inner priority to gain back a brother rather than keep everything and get everything right and fair. See that? When a brother or a sister listens, as Jesus describes it here, listens and entails he or she accepting responsibility for some element of wrongdoing, but they might fall short of accepting responsibility for every element of hurt that we feel. Or they might fall short of showing you satisfactory remorse and sorrow. You've experienced this before, right? And Satan wants to do nothing less than devour us, friends. Devour you personally and devour churches. 1 Peter 5 eight talks about this, how Satan roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That same language Paul used earlier. One of the most powerful tools for him to do this is bitterness. Holding on to our rights, making sure everything, you know, everything's fair and people pay back their wrongdoing. And so we ask these questions in our minds, well, what did that person really say sorry for everything? Right? Or, man, did they really sound or look very remorseful? You ever said that before? Yeah, they said sorry, but I don't feel like they're really sorry. That's how Satan gets in. He devours us. He devours fellowships. But when we're willing to give up some of what is right and what is fair for gaining back an imperfect brother or sister, an onlooking world will notice and ask, well, why? Why do, you, why do you? They were a jerk to you. Why would you take them back? I watched how they apologized to you. I watched how they still act towards you. Why would you take them back? Why would you eat with them? Why would you hang out with them? That's when we get an opportunity to honor and glorify God. Number three, a third way. A third way we can glorify God where it's least expected. It can be a hard one. It's when you respect and support your local church for exercising its God-assigned authority. Here's a fun one. But it's here in verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, I mean just spoken about the church here, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, 
It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Whenever you've heard these verses before, my guess is you've heard them in response to some type of prayer gathering. Right? It kind of goes like this. Hey, you know, I've got to go to this prayer thing. Would you come along with me? Please come along because if no one else is there, I need someone else because where two or more show up, that's when God's really there. He's really present. So we want to make two or more there. But two or three here has nothing to do friends, with prayer. Now, I love prayer. I love when people gather together. It's powerful. There are lots of verses supporting corporate prayer. This is not one of them. This has to do with two or three people in the church coming to an agreement on a matter of conflict. That's the context here. In fact, the fact that two or three are mentioned indicates really that church, responsible church leadership is supposed to be involved. Two or three reflects a well-known Jewish judicial practice of Jesus' time or two or three judges coming together to rule on a matter. And here, two or three persons who are called to rule well, just as church elders and church leaders are called to do in the New Testament. Rule well. And there's this matter of binding and loosing. What's, What's with this binding and loosing stuff? Am I all tied up emotionally? Is that what's going on here? In verse 18... I don't want to dwell on this long. But basically, the church is assigned authority. God does this to, to bind people to itself or let them go based on their responses to the gospel in the midst of conflict. All right, so when people have conflict, the gospel of peace, which says you are forgiven by Jesus, people will respond by staying bound to sin. They don't want to admit they're wrong or they don't want to forgive. Or people can loose themselves from sin by saying, yeah, I'm wrong. I humble myself. I'm going to say it. And they can loose themselves by forgiving the person who's offended them. So why should this matter to you? Two reasons. Number one, God has ordained the local church to be the primary encourager and primary referee in relationships. Does this mean what I think it does? Yes. It means if you walk away from the church and you find all your fellowship elsewhere, you're choosing to live apart from God's ideal pattern for fellowship. This is where it's at. All kinds of different people of different ages. God calls them together. It means also, number two, support and submission when it's hard. Author Dallas Willard put it this way in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. I love the way he says this. In submission, uh, we engage the experience of those in our fellowship who are qualified to direct our efforts and growth and who then add the weight of their wise authority on the side of our willing spirit to help us do the things we would like to do and refrain from the things we don't want to do. That's what it's all about. So in order to be released, to use our gifts and talents, those things we want to do, to use our gifts and talents to serve others, as we're called to do, and be protected from the unnecessary hurt that would hinder us from doing that, we've got to entrust some hard relational decisions to those in the church whom God has called, qualified, and given authority to make wise decisions. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. It's not always popular. 
But it's there, and it's here in Scripture. And I don't have any particular situation in mind. I don't have an axe to grind. I don't have, I don't have anyone specific in mind I'm thinking of here in this situation. But something like this will eventually happen because Jesus said it would. It's here. It's here for a reason. And it's not fun and it's hard. But that's why Jesus gives us instruction about it. And I can't say it's easy because I, I know I've been hurt by failed leadership in churches. Two churches to which I'm very close have both experienced failed leadership in the past five or six months. Ones that are dear to my heart. Um, one was a situation in which, you know, you kind of see the cracks before it crumbled, but was helpless to stop it from afar. And another was due to sort of secret sin and a lack of solid leadership structure in the church. And it hurts. And I know there's some of you out there who've experienced this as well. And I'm talking to you when I say this. And yet, despite the hurt that churches have caused, God Himself asks us to climb back in the saddle of support and submission again. Not because I say so. Please, not because I say so. Not because some church pamphlet says so or a website or something like that, but because the Father says so. Places like Hebrews 13, 17. Try again. And just as in the midst of pain, Jesus entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly, so can we. So can we. And imagine doing this, by the way. Especially on a small island, right, where word travels fast. Maybe news of something hard in a church happens and word travels fast. But when you talk about loving and supporting your church, even when trying to obey hard truths, a skeptical world that's heard testimonies of nothing but the abuses of church will hear a new testimony. Interesting. So that's the third way we can glorify God, or at least suspect the fourth way. Here's the last way. You choose to be wounded for a greater healing. You choose to be wounded for a greater healing. This is a tough one. The last one was tough. This one might be even tougher. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Then Jesus go on to tell, tell a story really about how a man is forgiven and then has the potential to forgive someone who's hurt him, indebted to him. And I love this scene because it's so typical of something that happened in a church. Right? I mean, having listened to Jesus Christ talk about relational peacemaking in a church, Peter comes up to Jesus and uses a hypothetical question to show off spiritually. In Judaism, you see traces of this in the Old Testament, three times with the sufficient amount to show that you're a pretty forgiving person. If you forgave someone three times, you see traces of this in the Old Testament, and it's very clear in Judaism. So Peter tries to impress Jesus and say, okay, here's how I deal with conflict in the church. So Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone? Seven times? So he's kind of going above and beyond. But Jesus, knowing Peter's heart, says, actually, Peter, 70 times seven. This is fascinating, right? Because to an onlooking world, 
three times would seem standard. Seven times would seem kind of super spiritual. Seventy times seven seems supernatural. Can't be done on our own. And that's how God is supremely glorified in the midst of conflict. When we keep forgiving and keep loving. But how do you get there? How do you get there? I want to end talking about this. Another thing I, I often hear is that you know, every time I forgive someone, and I again heard this this past week, every time I forgive someone, I, I allow them to take advantage of me and walk all over me. And I still walk away feeling angry or bitter, or else I wouldn't be talking about it still. Notice in this parable here, in the accounts of both conflicts, right, in this simple parable, the debt is acknowledged by those in debt. The debt someone owes is acknowledged by the one who owes. And in this, even in the second case, where the forgiven person has this potential to forgive, even as he's choking him, like Homer to Bart Simpson style, right? He's kind of choking him, and yet he can still get out a few words. The one in debt admits he owes him and says, you know, just be patient with me. Be patient with me. As I read this, I was reminded of the many tender moments in Jesus' ministry, the many moments in Jesus' ministry where we think of him forgiving, we think of him loving. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, about to be stoned, and the woman who's come to anoint his feet. These tender moments. In each of these cases, we, we always remember Jesus demonstrating grace and forgiveness but not before he acknowledges that each of those people has sinned. In each case, if you go back and read, he acknowledges there is real sin, there is real debt here that needs to be forgiven. In other words, the hard stuff Jesus brings up. We often forget that. So when someone says to you, friends, and you're in these situations where you feel like, man, I always feel like I always get walked all over in these situations. When someone says to you, hey, my bad, or hey, I can't pay you, or man, I, I promised the same thing to two different people, and especially when they make excuses, right? You, you said when they make excuses for the wrong, or, or they try to turn the wrong back on you as if it's somehow your fault. Have you been there before? Well, you know, I, I was wrong, but it, really, if you had sent me an email to remind me, I, I would have, you know, come on, you know me. I actually probably done that in the last month. But when someone do, does that, you must verbally acknowledge the debt. Speak it. Say it. Or else you'll never be able to, as Jesus says here in verse 35, forgive from the heart. Acknowledge the debt to them which can be more painful than the pain, right? The initial pain of being hurt. That can be more painful, especially if you're male. If you're of the male gender. To admit that something meant was cold, bro. That was cold. Something ticked you off, something hurt me. To say, man, I know that every rose has its thorn. I just didn't know it would be you. 
It'd be so funny if a guy did say that, though. Uh, it, but to, to say something anywhere on that range opens up men especially to more pain. It's vulnerable. To somehow admit that is, is less masculine. Like, you can't take it. But bitterness stays in our hearts when we don't. And we don't verbalize it. How many of you do marathons, cycle, swim, work out, that kind of thing? Raise your hand. It's okay. Raise your hand. We're proud of you. Come on. Uh, sometimes I don't see you on Sundays. You know what I'm talking about? All right. Um, many of you are willing, I love you guys, many of you are willing to allow your muscles to endure pain for the gain. A proverbial saying, right? Exercising a muscle causes tiny tears in the muscle fibers. Causes tiny tears, but you can trust your body to heal what you've wounded, right? And in doing so, those fibers basically come back bigger than before. And that's how you grow your, you know, huge muscles, right? That's how you get there. They create tears, they heal, they come back bigger than before. That's how it works. You can forgive this very simple analogy, but... How can we allow for such a possibility in physical training but not choose to be a wounded to allow greater healing and stronger relationships in the body of Christ? To say, you know what, that hurt me. To be honest, man, that was cold. We got to try. I know why we don't often. I'll give you one reason. Because we can't guarantee another part of the body of Christ will respond to your wound. We can't guarantee another part will respond to our wound. That's where each of us must identify with the main dude, with the protagonist in Jesus' parable. This is where we got to land. we got to identify. This man is forgiven 10,000 talents. And if you do the math, you go back, and you look at the Greek and all this stuff, you do the math, essentially it's equivalent to $6 billion forgiven today. All right? So you can't... I think I can safely say none of us can pay that back. All right? If you can, please let me know. We've got a church building I want to build. All right? But safely assume, right, we can't build that back. But that's forgiven. That's forgiven. He is owed the equivalent of $12,000. That's a lot. But possible. For the God of the universe... Each of us has started living a life of rebellion. And in doing so, we accumulated a debt towards a holy and just God who demands fair payment. He is fair. He is just. But through trusting your life to Jesus, even though we still rebel, we are forgiven. What you can never pay back. Even with the most righteous, with the most charitable, with the most kind life, you're forgiven. Such limitless forgiveness supplies the confidence required to to choose to be wounded and to be guaranteed of healing. Whether it's through a member of the body of Christ saying, yeah, man, I was wrong. Or, if not, by Jesus Christ himself who forgives you 833 times the debt owed to you. I did the math. Friends, a watching world is accustomed to HR departments and marriages sweeping conflict and tensions under the rug. They're used to holding on to grudges until everything's made right and fair and perfect again, and years go by. 
They're used to creating, churches creating the conflict and then abusing authority and doing it. And individuals doing whatever it takes to protect themselves from any wound and they don't expect the church to act any differently. Sunrise Community Church, let's shock the world by glorifying God where they least expect it. Let's pray. Father, first step here in making peace is this radical determination to think of conflict differently, to look at it as not a place to escape or a place to attack, but as divine opportunity to grow closer to a brother or sister in Christ and to glorify God. Glorify you. What an opportunity to glorify you where it's least expected. In all these different ways. I, I pray in one of these ways hits one of my brothers and sisters here today that this week they can think, here's an opportunity to glorify God in one of the ways we learned about from Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen.